you'll stand with me. I'm going to read today's passage from Ephesians chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, please turn with me. If you don't, it's going to be on the screens. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, don't own one, we've got Bibles all over the outsides of the room, and you're more than welcome to take one. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, God's holy word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is God's Word. Please be seated. In 1889, there was going to be an international exposition in Paris, France. And for several years before, as they were making preparations all over the city, they had commissioned one creative engineer uh, for this special structure for this international gathering. And as the structure was going up, the people of Paris began to more and more uh, speak against it, that they called it a monstrosity. They said they hated it. They said that as soon as this exposition is over, it must be torn down. Uh, the, the, the creator, the builder of this exhibit, uh, defended it and, and said, uh, you know, this is, uh, he loved it. He said it's got a future and, uh, and kept defending it. And this structure is known today as the Eiffel Tower, created by Auguste Eiffel. And this, it's amazing that this monument was so hated by the citizens of the time, wanted to torn down a, a monstrosity, but yet today it is probably the iconic landmark, not only in Paris, France, but one of the iconic landmarks in all the world, the majestic Eiffel Tower. There's a reminder of that because there was another founder of a structure, Jesus Christ, who created not a building, but an organizational structure, the church, his church, that down through the centuries has also been uh, criticized widely and, and thought of as a monstrosity, and, and, and we don't need it, it should go away, but yet the founder, again, defends it, loves it, believes in it, knows it has a destiny. And of course, that is the church of Jesus Christ. Here is this group of flawed people, but yet Christ speaks of it as his bride that he loves, as his body that he is part of, of, of his family that he uh, loves, of his kingdom that he rules. He loves his church, and he's got a destiny and a privilege. Because Christ loves his church, then we ought to love it too, despite the fact that it's quite flawed because it's got people in it like you and like me who are flawed people, but yet Christ is, is at work in our lives in creating a diverse group of people who come together to seek Him and to serve Him, to worship Him. Let me give you a little overview of the church in the Scriptures. We saw it last week that you can divide the Bible into three parts, three unequal parts. From Genesis 1 through 11, God is dealing with individuals, various individuals of all kind. But Beginning in Genesis 12, God says, okay, I'm going to form a nation, a people, a, a chosen people. The, called them the Jewish people. He chose one man, Abraham, said, Abraham, your descendants are going to be this special nation. 
You are created to be a holy people, to serve me only, and through you I want to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so from Genesis 12 through the, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it was all about this theocracy, Israel, that was to be the people of God. And all through the Gospels, when Jesus was alive, uh, same thing, this theocracy. But Jesus dies on a cross, pays for our sin, rises, rises from the dead, and ascends to the Father. He says, wait in Jerusalem for the power coming on high. And that's when God was going to birth a new community, a new people, not one nation, not one uh, ethnic group, but an international group of, of Jews and non-Jews coming together as equal partners without distinction. So in Acts 1, right after the Gospels, the, the early Christians, 120 of them are in an upper room, they're praying, and there's this loud sound of like the wind and the Spirit of God falls on those people, and God at that moment, recorded in Acts 2, births his church. And we today live in the age of the church, not the age of Israel or this theocracy, but the age of the church, God's people comprised of all kinds of folks all over the world. No longer are you primarily Jewish or primarily non-Jewish, the Bible calls them Gentiles, but you are part of a third race, the people of Jesus Christ, created anew in Him. So that's the overview of the Scriptures. Now, the last three weeks, we've been saying several basic truths about the church. From Acts 2, really, for the rest of the New Testament, the church is central. But especially in Ephesians, and especially in the section we're in, three weeks ago, or really two weeks ago, three messages ago, the, the big point about the church was the diversity of the church, bringing these very different people together. Now, in Paul's day, the, the big difference in people, the big division between people the Middle East where he lived in Jerusalem, in Israel, was between Jews and non-Jews, or Jews and Gentiles. There was just a huge difference that we have a little bit of a hard time grasping. But the barrier was so strong that a, a devout Jew every day would pray, you know, God, thank you that I am not a Gentile. And they would allow no Gentiles in their home, and they would certainly not eat with a Gentile. That would contaminate them. There's a huge rift and barrier between the Jews and everybody else. And God demolishes that barrier. He does so by sending His own Son to pay for the sin, which is the real barrier between peoples, is sin. And when He wiped out our sin, brought us back to Himself, He brought us together in Himself. It's a new division. For us, the barriers are different. We can be divided by ethnicity, by uh, socioeconomic background, by political um, opinions, by uh, uh, all kind of factors and issues. And the Bible says those are obliterated in Jesus Christ. We are one in Him. We're united by one thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, that was quite emphatic and strong two weeks ago uh, in the providence of God on Martin Luther King weekend. Now, last week, it was more on the centrality of the church, that, that this a flawed group of people, all different kinds of people coming together, uh, that it is it's so vital in God's plan. It's just right at the heart of God's plan. It's His kingdom that He rules. It's His body that He, uh, that he uh, is part of Him. It's His family that He loves. It's his, it's his temple that He dwells in. It's His bride that He loves. It's the centrality of the church. Now, this week, there's a third aspect that's brought out, and that is the mystery of Christ's church. And we're going to see what that's about. I appreciate that there is one modern translator of Scripture, 
Eugene Peterson, who did the message. Many of you have seen the message. Well, he called the church equal parts mystery and mess, which is true to life. Equal parts mystery and mess. We're going to see the mystery part today. We know about the mess part. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now he identifies himself, you know, partway through the chapter, partway through the, the, the passage, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, why does he call himself that? Why does he refer to himself as that? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, he is literally a prisoner in Rome. He is a prisoner, not of Christ Jesus in a literal sense, but of Emperor Nero. He is writing the letter of Ephesians from Rome under house arrest, chained to a prison guard continually. And so, very literally, he is a prisoner but of Emperor Nero, but he doesn't pick up on that because that's not the main fact of his existence. The main part of his identity is not, he's, not that he's in a jail under Nero in Rome, but that he is a prisoner, a, a blood-bought follower, a servant of Jesus Christ. That is the main thing. Now, why was Paul um, so passionate to follow him? Later he says, or elsewhere he says, I'm a servant of Jesus, or I'm a slave of Jesus. He means the same thing about prisoner. He means that I'm going to obey Jesus, follow Jesus, serve Jesus, no matter when, what, when, where it's, it's about. My whole life is about Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, it's because of this. Paul was a young, ardent, religious Jew who hated this young church and uh, splitting up the Jewish people and causing problems. He hated Jesus. He was a hard-charging, fire-breathing, church-persecuting man. He was on his way to Damascus to, to take Christians there and to bring them back and put them in prison. And on his way, God reveals his son to him, Jesus Christ, just as this bright sky, speaks to Paul, lets him know that I am Jesus, the Lord of glory. God ambushes Paul with his love and grace, changes his life completely. And he spent the rest of his days, until he was beheaded by Emperor Nero in a later imprisonment, the rest of his days, loving, serving, worshiping, and following Jesus. He never got over the grace of God in his life. This morning, many of you have been followers of Jesus, like me, for decades. And I just would have to ask us, you know, have you gotten over the amazing grace of God in your life? Has that grown stale and cold to you? Or do you still have a white, hot, fire and devotion to the one who is God and who died on a cross because he loves you? Oh, may we never get over it of what Jesus Christ has done for us. How great, how great thou art. So Paul identifies himself. I am a prisoner, not of Nero, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles, or on behalf of you Gentiles. So remember, he's writing to Ephesus. That's part of the Roman Empire, modern-day Turkey, writing to Ephesus. Those were primarily non-Jews, Gentiles. I'm in prison because of my ministry to the Gentiles, and this is how it kind of played out. Okay, when God saves Paul, who hated the church, who was a Jew of Jews, he said, okay, Paul, I'm going to make you not only an ambassador to the Gentiles, you're going to be kind of the end of the spear. You're going to be the main one. You're going to focus on reaching not the Jewish people, your people, but the Gentiles, the non-Jews. 
that you had hated. And that's what he did. He focused on reaching the Gentiles. There was such hostility in Jerusalem that when he was in the temple back in Acts 21 on the temple grounds, he was accused of bringing Gentiles up there, and, and there was a big riot, and uh, he was trying to defend himself. And when he came to the point about that his calling is to Gentiles, well, they just was an aurora that erupted, and they had to arrest him to, to, to save his life. And, and uh, to get free, he had to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so that eventuated in his long ship voyage to, to, to Rome, where he is now in prison. He is literally a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. Now he goes on to say in verse 2. Well, actually, he interrupts himself in verse 2. If you've got a Bible, you can see there's a big dash there. He's going on, and, and he interrupts himself. And he doesn't get back to his train of thought until he gets to verse 14, when he, he gets back to his thought in which he says again, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he goes on to praise for them, one of the great prayers in the Bible. But here he interrupts himself. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on the, for the sake of you Gentiles. And he says, wait, wait a minute. I assume you've heard about my ministry to the Gentiles. That's what he says in verse 2, in, a, in essence. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, he used to live in Ephesus. Three years he spent in Ephesus. But that was 10 years ago. And a lot of new people had come, so they hadn't all seen him and knew him, but they at least heard about him. I assume you've heard about my ministry to the Gentiles. My ministry is a stewardship of grace. Now, I love that simple little phrase. That's kind of Paul's language in the New Power. He kind of summarizes his message as a message of grace. Not a message of religion. Not a message of earning this. Not a message of rule-keeping and do's and don'ts, but a message of the grace of God. That is, God says, you don't earn this. I give it to you freely. I send my son to die for your sake and I freely give you forgiveness if you're willing to accept it. It's the grace of God. Now, Paul's whole life was about grace. Every one of his letters in the New Testament, he begins with grace, the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ be with you, something like that. He ends every letter with grace. He talks about grace all the time, and he could not get over this incredible thing, which we humans have a hard time getting over. That is that uh, we don't earn our favor with God, He gives it to us freely. If we'll just receive it, we'll just have it. You know, it's been said that there are two things necessary for humans to be emotionally healthy, relationally healthy, spiritually healthy, just healthy and whole people. Two things, and they both involve grace. You've got to be a good forgiver, you've got to be a good receiver of grace, and you've got to be a good dispenser of grace. First of all, you've got to receive God's grace for your sin. Forgive yourself. Receive God's forgiveness that it is bigger no matter what you have done, how you have failed, that the grace of God can cover all of your sin. That is absolutely essential. You're going to live in guilt and bondage. But not only receiving grace, now that we've received grace, we've got to give out that grace to the people around us who at times can be pretty obnoxious and at times can wound us and hurt us deeply. And the Bible says... If you want any kind of peace, joy, health, wholeness, then you've got to not only receive the grace of God, but you've got to pass out that grace to the people who have hurt you. 
Now, what's interesting is that every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we come to the same two things in the fourth petition, fifth petition. Because do we not pray, Lord, would you forgive us our debts? That is, we're receiving God's grace for our debts, for our sin. As we also have forgiven our debtors, God has forgiven me of $10 billion, billion worth of sin. So yes, Jeff, you can forgive these other people of $100 worth or $1,000 worth or a $1 million worth of sin. Receive the grace of God. Forgi- um, dispense the grace of God. Now, at the end this morning, I'm just going to warn you, we're going to come back to those. Because we're going to see that the body of Christ is together, and there's no way that you can be together as one body unless you are big-hearted forgivers, grace-givers, grace-receivers. And if there's anybody in your life that you're holding a grudge toward, God wants you to let it go this morning. All righty. It's a stewardship of grace. It's all about grace. And now he comes to the main thread that is mystery. In verse 3, he says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That is, Peter didn't teach it to him. Barnabas didn't teach it to him. Paul, James, and John didn't teach it to him. But God revealed it to him by his Spirit. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, let me just clarify the term mystery because our English word mystery has a different nuance, a different connotation. When we use the English word mystery, we're thinking of something like this. You know, that's just not completely clear. I don't completely understand it. For example, we might say of the Trinity in the Bible that it is a mystery. You know, how does it all work together and fit in? It's mysterious. It is beyond my comprehension. But in the New Testament, it uses the same word in a different sense. In fact, it's it's literally the word mysterion from which we get mystery. But fear the connotation is not that we cannot understand it, but that it was secret in the past, not revealed by God. And you'd never know it unless God revealed it. But now he has revealed it and it's here. And that's what he says in verse 5. He says, it wasn't known to other people, the, the, the sons of men, but it has now been revealed. So this mystery is no longer something you don't understand. You know it because God revealed it. Now, what is this mystery we're talking about that other passages talk about? Well, verse 6 tells us emphatically, clearly, when it says, This mystery is that the Gentiles, or fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What Paul is saying is that this is a new day. No longer is God's plan orbiting all around the Jews, all around Israel, that they are the chosen people. It's a new day. Now, all kinds of people from all kinds of, uh, of, of backgrounds all over the world, come together as one body in Christ. Now, I know for you and me, that's, uh, you know, that's just no big deal. Maybe partly because we've read the Scriptures a lot and we know that, but, but also we don't live in that tension, in that world. But what if you lived in the Middle East today? Maybe you're traveling in Jordan, and somehow you came across someone from the country up north who was part of ISIS, and your background had been spending time in Israel, and you had some very close friends who were Israeli. And can you imagine, here is an ISIS 
extremist who hated this Israeli right-winger and vice versa, putting those groups of people together in one body. Okay, now we get the picture. I mean, if you're thanking God every day, you're not a Gentile. I mean, there's deep hostility. And God says, it's a new day. And in my new day, the new people of God, the new community of God, there are no divisions. What that means for you and me is that there are no first-class Christians and second-class Christians. All kinds of people here, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, all kinds of people from all kinds of countries. I found out this week that there were 47 countries of origin represented by the people at Wood's Edge, which I love. In fact, that's what we know of. I bet there's a few more that we don't know of and we get 50. Uh, that means that um, no first-class, second-class distinctions between the wealthy and the poor, between the Republican and the Democrat, between the never-married and the divorced, or the singles and the married. All of us, together, equal parts in the body of Jesus Christ, covered by the blood of Jesus, brought together as one in the church that Christ loves. And there are implications. There are implications of this. That Paul says this is the mystery. Now, there's a little side note about verse 6, that my translation, which I think is the best English translation today, it's called the ESV. That's the translation I preach from. Love the translation, but, but, but there's another translation or other translations that I think bring out verse 6, the wording, a little bit better. Because three times in verse 6, on each of the three phrases there, three phrases being fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise, three things we share that in the original language, there's a, a, the same prefix is, is, is repeated all three times, and it kind of brings out together, together, together. And so, let me just show you the NIV, which is coming on the screen. They bring that out a little bit better. When they say, where is that? Somewhere. Here it is. All righty. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I just think it's a little bit more clear here. But the same point is made. We're together. We're a body. We're a family. We are heirs together. We saw it last week. This means that uh, God's church is not about a bunch of scattered individuals. This is not a bunch of marbles who kind of collide off each other and scatter again. It's more like a bunch of grapes who hang together. Now, much of the world, Africa, Asia particularly, gets the uh, community aspect, but, but in the United States, our heritage for several centuries, since the start, a, a bunch of self-reliant, man-made, self-made individualism is rife. But God's whole plan is community, together family. And to be fully biblical Christians, we've got to get this mindset that we're part of a family, that we need to love each other, care for each other, accept each other, forgive each other, do life with each other. Not a bunch of individuals. We are a community, a body of Christ. John Stott, one writer, said this about the body, the togetherness of the church. He says, we're not only committed to Christ, we're also committed to the body of Christ. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anom anomaly and unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of that. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. 
It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community for His purpose created, conceived in past eternity, being worked out in history, be perfected in a future eternity. It's not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but it is to build His church, to call out His people for His own glory. So then, the reason why we are committed to the church is that God is so committed True, we may be dissatisfied, even disillusioned with some aspects of the institutional church, but still we are committed to Christ and His church. We love the church because Christ loves it. I would encourage us to make it our practice for Christ-honoring, Bible-believing churches that we don't bash them because they have a different style than we've got. Different types of things that maybe not quite our flavor, our cup of tea. It is Christ's church. Christ loves His church. Flaws and all, and that includes this church. He loves it, and so we must love it too. One person uh, uh, in the, the call of the New Testament, the assumption of the New Testament, is that you're vitally related to Christ's church because you love the church. Not related to it in theory, just kind of, you know, kind of on paper, but uh, an actual group of flesh and blood church people that you'll love it. There was a singer 20 years ago who died tragically in an auto accident that some of us loved. His name was Rich Mullins. And many of us loved his fresh heart for God. In fact, I sing a Rich Mullins song just about every day in my personal time with the Lord, personal worship. He once said this about the church. He said, I hear people say, why do you want to go to church? They are all just hypocrites. I never understood why going to church made you a hypocrite because nobody goes to church because they're perfect. If you've got it all together, you don't need to go. You can go jogging with all the other perfect people on Sunday morning. Every time you go to church, you're confessing again to yourself, to your family, to the people you pass on the way, to the people that you greet there, that you don't have it all together, that you need their support, you need their direction, you need some accountability, you need some help. Not a place. Wood's Edge is not a place of perfect people, but people who are learners, travelers, wounded people on the journey, needing the grace of God. This is God's plan, the church coming together to serve Him, to love Him. We grow together, we serve together, we give together, we connect together. We're heirs together, we're members together, we're partakers together of His promises. So this is what we've seen the last few, church, few passages, the diversity of the church, the glorious diversity, the glorious centrality of the church, and now the glorious mystery of the church, this new thing that is God's plan, and there's no plan B. It's his bride. It's his body. There was a football player at Baylor University. For you Baylor alums, you probably would remember this player. His name was Mike Singletary, probably the, the, the greatest football player Baylor's had. In fact, he went on for a long career in the NFL and is one of the all-time great middle linebackers to ever play the game. Mike Singletary became a devoted follower of Jesus. And it was part of a local flesh-and-blood church in the Chicago area. And his wife moved a long way away, and, and then they recount this little story. He says, we love this church, but our, we built our dream home, moved in for one week. We looked at each other and said, we are too far from our church. So we sold our home so we could get closer to the action. Because the action, where God is at work, is through the church, flawed people just like you and me. 
That's where the great work of God is doing. His pastor, Bill Hybels, as elsewhere, put it this way. He said, there's nothing like the local church when it's working right. It transforms lives heart by heart, soul by soul, life by life. Its potential is unlimited. The church is the hope of the world. And that is the biblical perspective that Jesus Christ teaches. You know, when he talks about the church, when it's working right, lives are changed, life by life, soul by soul, heart by heart. One of the privileges that I have of being pastor of Woods Edge is that I probably get more notes than anyone about the, the, the lives that are being changed, the hearts that are being transformed, the worlds that are being completely oriented, reoriented by the grace of God. I probably get more of those than anybody. And it's so encouraging of what God is doing among us. I wish you could hear them all, see them all. God is at work in the church. God is at work in our lives. He's called us together. So we pray together, we give together, we serve together, we love together, we reach out together, we connect together. Now, in closing, this togetherness thing don't work, doesn't work unless we, like Paul, are champions of grace, giving out grace and receiving grace. It all starts there with the Lord's Prayer in some ways. Is there any area of residual guilt that you are allowing in your life to be a barrier between you and your Father? Give it to Him. Give it to Him. The blood of Christ is, is greater than your sin. Believe me, it is. Is there any resentment, grudge, unforgiveness that you're holding against somebody else? Give it to Him. Give it to Him. It is blocking your relationship with God, and it is destroying your life. So just breathe a prayer. Lord God, is there anybody that you want to put on my heart that I need to forgive right now, right here? And then this is what we're going to do. We're going to do something we never do. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer again. And when we get to that statement, we're going to pray it from all of our hearts. Lord, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Would you stand with me? Pray with me. It's on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord God, set people free all over the room. Set people free from guilt. Set people free from resentment and anger. God puts anything in your heart, just give it to Him now. Give it to Him now. Because you're a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Lord, we bless you. Thank you. Thank you for the freedom you give us.